Hello, and welcome to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. I'm Mario Sakura, and this is the place where my co-hosts, TJ Dahl and TJ Ingracia, and I discuss movies through the lens of the Enneagram model of personality. If you like the show, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe, and join the conversation on our social media pages. For now, grab some popcorn, sit back, and enjoy the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. Today, we are going to be talking about the preserving domain of instinctual biases and uh, talking about two movies, uh, one starring a, a female lead character and one with a male lead character. Uh, TJ and Gracia, you picked these movies, and um, why don't you give us a quick uh, intro into what the movies are and why you picked them, and then we'll say hello to our friend TJ Daw. Sure. Well, I picked Father of the Bride, the 1991 Steve Martin comedy, and the film No Reservations with Catherine Zeta-Jones and Aaron Eckhart from 2007. Uh, Father of the Bride, I watched a lot when I was a kid. It was just one of those movies that was on a lot in my house, and I've always liked Steve Martin and just have always had fond uh, fond feelings for the film. And he just, you know, I, he couldn't be more preserving, I don't think. So it's a great film yeah. to talk about those those kinds of issues. And then uh, No Reservations, I love food movies. And so I was trying to find, just go through the list of good food movies with female leads. And I had remembered seeing this one a while back and just felt like it'd be a good one to uh, discuss. Yeah, I think they're both excellent choices to depict the preserving instinctual bias. I have a feeling I'm not as big a fan of either of these movies as you might be, but uh, that, but that's okay, right? Uh, I mean, uh, you didn't like Purple Rain, and I don't hold that against you. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> TJ Daw, what was your reaction to these movies? I had seen No Reservations when it was new, as well as the German movie that it's based on, and strongly enjoyed them both. Father's a Bride I had seen maybe five minutes of on TV when it was recent enough to be airing on TV for the first time, never seen the full thing. And I remember my reaction when I saw those first five minutes being like, are they trying to make Steve Martin not funny in this? Like I just, (laughs) what's happening here? And that was maybe 30 years ago. So I watched it this time. And then I had that thought for the entire hour and 45 minutes of the movie of like, as well as it actually, we can get into this further when we get to it, but it kicked up a lot of unhealthy foreshit in me of just Mm. virulently rejecting everything the movie is about and despising the movie and the people who made it and the people that it was made for (laughs) and imagining like, like I was coming up with a lot of creative insults for the movie of like, just one of them off the top of my head is like watching this movie is like being made to eat an entire loaf of wonder bread in one sitting. (laughs) Watching this movie is like having to eat a family sized tub of, I can't believe it's not butter with a spoon in one. Like, thing like that one time after another of like as well as watching I don't necessarily disagree with any of that but I maybe I like a tub of uh, I can't believe it's not butter and at the same time I think it is an excellent example of certain aspects of preserving like I can hate the movie in and of itself and think that as a teaching piece it's brilliant Yes, and and both of these are and uh, I I look forward really to getting into that Uh, I will say uh, just my general reaction to both films with Father of the Bride, I saw it in the theater back in 1991 and immediately forgot about it, never thought about it again. When I rewatched it the first time, because I had such a impression of it, of blandness and just nothingness to it, I actually found myself charmed by it watching it this time. And I have to say that at the wedding scene, I actually got a little bit teary rewatching it this time. And now the second time I watched it this time, it returned to being kind of wallpaper. I thought that Steve Martin was only funny uh, during the scene at the in-laws house. I do think that uh, uh, even that scene was kind of ridiculous. I thought it was funny. Um, And I do think Martin- But doing more of some of his classic physical, you know, he's got a very physicality to his comedy and it came out in that scene for sure. Exactly. Exactly. And that is when Steve Martin is at his best when he gets to use his physicality. I think of a movie like Roxanne, for example, I'm not, I'm not a huge Steve Martin fan. I mean, I I like him. I respect him as an artist and as a, you know, a genius comedian, but um, yeah, you know, I, I, I could leave or take most of his stuff. 
I will say no reservations. I felt like I was watching a movie constructed by Hallmark. And, um, you know, just everything about it was, for me, quite bland. I, I you know, I, I, if it was a dish, it would have been uh, baked chicken with no seasoning and uh, noodles or something, right? There was just, uh, for me, I just found it to be completely uninteresting. I found it interesting that could, they could take a stunningly beautiful and sexy woman and strip her of anything seemingly interesting, right? I mean, I compared the Catherine Zeta-Jones character in this movie in my mind to the one where she played uh, in the John Cusack movie. Um, High Fidelity. Oh, shoot. High Fidelity, yes, where she was just oozing uh, sexuality. And on this one, there was just, she just was kind of an irritating, dull person as far as I was concerned. Um, but... You know, this is why there's chocolate and vanilla, right? People like different movies, and that's okay. Maybe it's just an alternate universe where Catherine Zeta-Jones is a preserving one, and so there's a. <laughs> it was a good, toned down a little bit. It was a good depiction of a preserving one character, and then we'll, we'll get more into the types of uh, some of the characters in these movies, uh, w- without a doubt. And again, um, for me, this was great evidence of what I talk about when I talk about the pattern of expression of the instinctual biases, right? I'm a navigator and my zone of indifference is in the preserving domain. And so for me, preserving movies just kind of zip right into the background. I mean, I just kind of go to sleep when they start. Okay, so let's talk about the preserving domain quickly. So most people in the Enneagram world call this the self-preservation instinct. Um, as I've said before, we don't. Re- I don't refer to it as an instinct because it's not a singular instinct. It's a cluster of evolutionary adaptations that have to do with preserving. Now, why not self-preservation? Well, simply because it's not just about preserving the self. And something that I noticed about these movies is that they were actually both about parenting, okay, about caring for the offspring in the next generation. And this is something that's really important. In fact, whenever I discuss this instinctual domain, I talk about how it's a cluster of behaviors or adaptations that increase the probability that we will be able to raise offspring to viability. Okay, Meaning that we survive long enough and healthy, healthily enough to have offspring, and then we care for those offspring until they reach reproductive age, into which, at which point we basically fade into irrelevance. Yes, grandparenting is an important stage. Okay, so the grandparenting takes on what um, Eric Erickson would have called generativity. Right, it's this idea of giving to the future generation without need for expectation. Grandparents are able to provide sort of unconditional love to, to children that they don't always feel from the parents because the parents have expectations of clean your room, you know, take, your, take out the trash, et cetera, et cetera, that grandparents usually don't have. So grandparents usually serve as an important force in raising them to viability age. Okay, so it's usually when the grandchildren get about into their 20s or so that grandparents start to decline physically, right? Which is why we don't see that many great grandparents traditionally, uh, you know, extensions in medicine and, um, uh, you know, health practices are increasing that. But traditionally, great grandparents were rare because biologically speaking, they just weren't needed. So this the domain is about identifying things that work and keeping them. Okay, it's about behaviors that ensure my comfort, my resources, my um, the viability. I take care of myself. I clean myself. I take care of my resources that I need. I manage risk effectively meaning I don't take unnecessary risks. I I may not be necessarily risk avoidant, but I'm going to be more conscious of risk than the other two instinctual biases will be. Um, I'm going to be focused on safety. I'm going to be focused on relationships as well. And this takes us to one of the reasons why so many people misidentify as sexual or one-to-one subtypes 
because of the way that preservers handle relationships. Okay, I'll come back to that in a moment when we talk about the movies. Okay, um, let's see. So there are issues of comfort, supply, health, repair, making sure the things around us are fixed and working the way they should be. Tradition is a big part of this domain. And both of these movies had a lot to do with tradition. Okay, not just the wedding um, and all the things that went along with it, but even in No Reservation, she was a French chef. And when he started introducing Italian recipes, it was a, you know, it was a horror as far as she was concerned. And there's Tending to the Nest. Both of these movies were nesting movies. Okay, certainly the home in uh, Father of the Bride was a big focus, right? The, the comfort the, of the home and the, the dependability of the home is a big theme. And even though it wasn't so much about the home in No Reservations, the kitchen served as a home. And you'll also notice that she would sort of sneak off into the freezer box every so often, which was her little private nesting place. So the preserving domain is all about nesting and nurturing and clusters of behaviors that increase the probability that we will be healthy and safe and secure enough to reproduce and then see those that we reproduce into viability of parenting age. This doesn't mean that every preserver will create children, okay? Just like not every transmitter will create children. Evolution is a game of probabilities, and so it's behaviors that increase those chances. That gets into the other point I wanted to bring up is I believe your take on the preserving domain breaks off from the Riso Hudson and a lot of other teachers in including tradition, because those are largely thought of as things from the navigating or the social domain. It's like these are the bonds that tie us together as a civilization, whether that's as a family or as a clan or a village or a country. So why would you place that in the preserving domain? Like, how did you come up with that difference? Uh, well, it, it was it was basically through observation that I started to notice it. Now, what navigators do is they create group mores and they focus on group mores. But as far as traditions are concerned, meaning you know the holiday traditions and um, you know uh, um, you know traditional practices like the study of genealogy, for example, and all these sort of things, or family recipes, or family recipes. They, those are just things that I see preservers doing and navigators being indifferent toward. Okay, my wife loves to decorate for the holidays. Okay, and it's not just because she's a woman, it's because she's a preserver and she wants the holidays to be like they were when she was a kid. Okay, so there's this holding on to something that's important. Whereas navigators are usually, yeah, don't really care so much about that. I do care about group mores, right? How the group is supposed to function so I understand my way in it. But traditions typically indifferent to, and most navigators are. And why do you think preservers are more interested in those things? Because the impulse to preserve is to hold on to things that have shown to be dependable, right? This worked for me as a kid. This has worked for society for a long time. So let's honor it and treasure it and rely on it because it's dependable and consistent. And I can put it on to, I can automate it. And this is a big thing. The uh, that often doesn't get talked about. The preserving domain is very much about habitual automation of activities. Okay, so when you think about uh, you know animals who uh, uh, you know eat or make their nests or whatever it is, right? It's this habitual automated tendency. And when I work in organizations, the operations groups. The ones that make sure that you know the, the the factories run on time and produce X amount of widgets are always very preserving, right? Because preserving is about process and structure and dependability and reliability and consistency. So that that's where all those things fit in. One thing that I did notice, sort of a theme that emerged for both of these films, and you can tell me if you think that this makes sense in the preserving domain. And the, the, I would describe the theme this way. I would call it protect the kingdom. And both of these characters have these little kingdom, little worlds that they've built for themselves. 
And the dilemma of the film is that they're, they start to lose control of their lives when an unknown outsider comes yes. in and threatens the stability of their little worlds and, and how they're going to deal with that. So that, seemed, that was just interesting that those things kind of emerge through both films. You're absolutely right. Uh, you know, I, I, I refer to the, the preserving domain as basically oriented to nesting and nurturing. And we don't like things coming into our nest. Okay, you know, the bird doesn't want other birds coming into our nest. And we just, we protect those sort of domains. And so the preserving instinctual bias is all about this. If you think about Father of the Bride, it starts off with him talking about the house and the town that they live in of San Marino. And he says, one of the things that I like most about it is that it really hasn't changed in 25 years. Okay. And with her, you know, when in no reservations, when does she get all worked up? When this new guy comes into the, sh into the kitchen and starts changing things. So you're absolutely right. Protect the kingdom. Stay out of my nest. I just wanted to add for anybody who's relatively new to the Enneagram listening to this, all three instinctual biases are influenced by our type, but they're also agnostic to what your type is. You can be a preserver of any type. You can be a navigator of any type. You can be a transmitter of any type. What your type is will influence the way that pattern of expression expresses itself. But it's not like you're a preserver and then some other people are sevens. It's like you would be a preserving seven or a transmitting seven or a navigating seven. Correct. And you bring up a good point here. And my view is it's really, really hard to get type right if you don't understand the instinctual biases because it creates variation within the type. The other thing is, is that some of the types and some of the instinctual biases really look like each other. And the two that most look, look most like the preserving instinctual bias are the six and the one, which happen to be the main Enneagram types of the two char main characters we're going to talk about today. So there's a lot of overlap here, which was why the Enneagram can be a subtle and nuanced system, much more than people realize. I'll also touch on the relationship thing too, because we're going to see the importance of relationship in this. And the preserving relationship, the one-to-one -one relationship is much different than the transmitting one-to-one -one relationship. If we take, for example, no reservation, and I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves here, but you're taking two people that in another movie could be really, really sexy human beings, right? Who could have a lot of sparks flying off of them. And that was kind of stripped out. And the relationship is more comfort oriented. It's romantic, but it's not sexy. It's certainly not Prince and Apollonia, for example, <laughs> okay, uh, as, as we saw prior. So, More's the pity. <laughs> yeah, a very different dynamic, okay? And so a lot of times I see people get misidentified as quote-unquote one-to-one subtypes because this comfortable romance is so important to them, okay? But it's really important to make that distinction. So why don't we uh, why don't we start off? I think we're going to start off with Father of the Bride. Is that correct? Okay, go ahead, TJ. Why don't you give us an overview of that movie? Father of the Bride is a 1991 comedy starring Steve Martin as George Banks, a loving but overprotective father struggling to come to terms with the fact that his daughter Annie is getting married. The film follows George as he navigates the complexities and expense of planning a wedding with the help of eccentric wedding planner Frank, played by Martin Short while trying to maintain his relationship with his daughter and with his sanity. Through comedic misunderstandings and emotional ups and downs, George ultimately learns to let go and embrace the joys of his daughter's wedding day. Old dad was history. If I remember seeing someone who looked like Brian's twin on America's Most Wanted. First, the wedding of our children. Wedding coordinator? What's a wedding coordinator? We're gonna color coordinate with the swans, right? Swans. I have a great idea where we can have this wedding. Where? The steak pit. I don't think you want the word pit on a wedding invitation. I'm told that one day I'll look back on all of this with great affection and nostalgia. I hope so. Good night, Mr. Banks. 
Drive carefully. And don't forget to fasten your condom. Dad! Seatbelt, I meant. I meant seatbelt. Father of the bride. T.J. Dahl, what about this movie in your mind made it a good example of preserving? Well, just to build on what you mentioned before, in the setup of the movie, there's voiceover narration and George Banks, Steve Martin, is just letting us, the audience, know about his life. So here's what his life is like before he even found out that his daughter was engaged. And he mentions how much he loves this town, you know, that it never changes. And I, this is almost a direct quote, being a guy who doesn't like change, this place fits me like a glove. He likes things to be just the way they are. And then, so we see where he works. He runs his own running shoe company and it seems to be doing quite well. He drives a pretty nice car. He's got a convertible. He's got a really nice house. And, and he's telling us about how much he likes the house, that it's warm in the winter. It's cool in the summer. It looks great with Christmas lights on. He loves that he taught his kids to ride a bike in that driveway, that he slept in tents with them in the backyard. So it's very much like, welcome to my comfortable life. He's not bragging. You know, the house, by my standards, is massive. Yeah, it's a pretty nice house. Yeah, and, and San Marino is a really expensive place to live. And yeah, he's not flashy about it. It's not the kind of house that would stop you in your tracks. It's, it's a traditional house. It's a nice house. It's decorated not in any flashy or fashionable way, but it's not antiquated or cheap. It's just, it's nice. And he likes his nice life, which that's something that I, you know, just jumping to the end, you know, talking about other movies that are about preservers, any movie where the protagonist likes their life and does not want to go on an adventure. They're comfortable the way they are. They, like Bilbo Baggins is a great example of that. Or the Will Ferrell character in Stranger Than Fiction. It's like, I've got my routine. I've got my life. It's all working. Please do not mess with it. And of course, something comes in and messes with it because otherwise it wouldn't be a movie. Yeah, great. TJ Gracia, what, what else did you see that was preserving about this movie? Pretty much every frame of the film, <laughs> I'd say. So TJ just talked about the setup. So then he goes into the house and the boom gets lowered onto him. His daughter is home from studying abroad in Rome, I think she was at. She met a man. They fell in love. She, you know, And she announces at the dinner table, I'm engaged. And, and you can see as she's getting more and more excited and starting to talk about it, George is getting more and more I don't even know how to describe the look, like skeptical and like defensive. Horrified. <laughs> and then as soon as she says that she's engaged, he kind of like is stunned for a second. And it does this cutaway where he envisions her as a little girl saying, I met a man in Rome and we're getting married. Again, it's this holding on to this, you know, I'm, I'm losing control of the kingdom that I've built for myself. I want her to stay a little girl forever. And she's growing up and he has to figure out how to deal with that. And of course, the fiance's occupation is independent consultant or something like that, which he immediately interprets as unemployed, unemployable. Right. This guy's going to be a leech. I'm going to have to support them. I'm going to have to hire him in my own company and fire three good people who have families already. Like, so he's already forecasting disaster, which is both a sixth thing and a preserving thing. Yeah, and I and I will say that um, a good point there, TJ. So the, Steve Martin's character does seem like an Enneagram Type Six, and the preserving six is probably the most preserving conflict, uh, not conflict avoidant, but risk avoidant of all the twenty-seven personality styles. Right? It really is all set up about not allowing for change to happen that could be threatening, and so we see so much of this. Everything seems like a threat to this character, but not just in a six-ish way, right? Uh, not just in a fear-based way, but something different in that, that not so much that this is going to hurt me or the people I care about, but this is going to disrupt this comfortable, consistent, frozen-in-time life that I've crafted for myself. And the, the business, I, I mentioned earlier that uh, when I work in organizations, I think of the operations and manufacturing part of it to be preserving activities. Well, the, the scenes that happen at work for him are in the factory, right? So again, it fits right there. The, the, the whole thing is about money and spending too much money, even though, you know, again, the, the amount of money he was spending was an awful lot by anyone's standards, but it didn't look like it was something that was going to make him have to sell his house or, as he said at one point, be wandering around the neighborhood in his bathrobe like you know, somebody else was doing. So, But still, there was this anxiety about it. 
Yeah, one of the things that you've said about the instinctual biases is where does your mind go when it doesn't need to go anywhere else? And that can be in both joy and stress. That can be, here's this thing I'm looking forward to. You know, if you think about what you're planning when you have a vacation or something, you know, are you thinking of where am I going to eat? Or, you know, is, is the bed going to be comfy? Or are you thinking about what what concerts are playing in this place? Or what stand-up comedians can I go see? Or what bookstores can I visit? That kind of thing. Like, or who can I visit? Or what are the social customs where I'm going to go? As well as frustration over those things. This isn't being done right. Or someone's going to impact this. Or I don't have enough of what I need from this domain that's very important to me. And that I just, when I'm on autopilot, I'm probably thinking about that domain. You're, you're absolutely right. These things become sort of our, our touchstones for how to be in the world, right? Um, the, the, we, we revert to those things that we think are important and go back to them. And our instinctual bias is a big part of that. One thing I did want to talk about and get your thoughts on, he has the opportunity to torpedo the wedding when his future son-in-law and his daughter have a big fight. He buys her a blender. It leads to this big existential crisis. And so he goes to the bar to talk to Brian about it. And he's, you know, we're hearing his voiceover as he's talking to him. And it's like, this is the, if I ever had a chance to blow this thing up, this was it. And, but he actually like comforts him and talks him into staying basically. And so I thought that was an interesting, you know, it's like when push came to shove and his daughter's happiness was on the line, he reverted to some of the positive side of those preserving things. Repair, literally the word repair, working on the relationship, the safety for his daughter. He also treats his employees well. And that's not a given with a preserver because some some preservers can be incredibly stingy. So running a business would be a matter of, I will milk you employees for as much labor as I can and pay you as little as possible and then live in luxury myself because uh, all I care about is the bottom line. All I care about is accumulating my big pile of treasure no matter what it costs. Yeah. And at the same time, preservers can be incredibly generous. And when they're generous, they're generous with preserving things in general. So I'm going to cook you this wonderful meal, or I will pay you very well, or I will treat you to something. It's a way to give and receive love. Yeah. And and I will say that, uh, again, working in organizations, I see kind of a dividing line, right? So usually preservers who are there with the people are generally generous and kind and thoughtful, even while trying to save money and cut costs whenever possible. It's when the uh, preservers are removed from people, they don't interact with them that much, and they can see them as just costs and get focused on the, the on the nickels and dimes of things that you can start to see some of this more uh, indifference or even stinginess uh, that we see. I work with a number of organizations that are owned by private equity firms, for example, and private equity firms are all about just wringing out the profit from something, right? You buy something, you increase the profitability and you sell it and that's how you make money, okay? And so very often there can be an indifference to the employees at times. But to your point, TJ, I think that the majority of preserving owners, managers tend to be kind of thoughtful for people's well-being if they're at all healthy people. Let's see, uh, a couple of other things, you know, again, to, to speak of the uh, the niceness, the comfortableness of that family, you know, there were the, the cornball basketball scenes with his daughter, right, where they're, you know, getting all excited about making shots three feet from the basket and all of that, you, you know. Uh, <laughs> you know, a lot of real hokiness in the movie, but, Again, very comfortable. For me, this is a movie that was basically just a, a big-budget Hallmark movie. Uh, and by the way, if you want to really, really, really understand what the, inst the preserving instinctual domain is about, pop on some Hallmark for a while. You'll, you'll see it in all its glory. And you have postulated Steve Martin as a four, and I have never seen him that way. And I would submit this as exhibit A of why he could not possibly be a four, because I cannot imagine a four agreeing to be in a movie so conventional that celebrates such conventionality without <laughs> dying of dehydration after vomiting every time they call cut. <laughs> Yeah, you you make it. You make a valid point. I, I I will have to reconsider Steve Martin as a four. I I always think of the um, uh, the Steve Martin of Roxanne, which is such a classic fourish um, but light sort of thing. But uh, but you're right. I may be jumping to a conclusion there. 
If you want to find out more about my work with the Enneagram and organizations of all kinds or our certification programs, visit me at mariosecura.com or follow me on social media. Hi, I'm TJ Daw, and I do one-on-one consulting on creative projects of all kinds, as well as Enneagram coaching. I teach an online course on how to create your own one-person show, and I speak at events and perform shows of my own. For more information, go to my website, www.tjdawe.ca. This is TJ Ingracia. To check out my YouTube series, Typecast, which explores the Enneagram through film and television, go to youtube.com slash typecast. And if you're interested in my professional video production services, check out tjingracia.com. Okay, so let's go on and uh, talk about our second movie, which is No Reservations. Uh, TJ, uh, give us an overview. TJ Ingracia, give us a summary of No Reservations. No Reservations is a 2007 romantic drama about a successful and perfectionistic chef named Kate Armstrong, played by Catherine Zeta-Jones, who leads a solitary life in her New York restaurant. When her sister dies, Kate becomes the guardian of her young niece, Zoe. With the help of sous chef Nick Palmer, played by Aaron Eckhart, she learns to open up her heart and find happiness in both her personal and professional life. The film follows Kate as she navigates the challenges of motherhood and falling in love, all while striving to maintain her culinary excellence and the success of her restaurant. Through a journey of self-discovery and growth, Kate learns to balance her demanding career and her newfound role as a mother and partner. This is my kitchen. You're crossing the line. Look, your spoon's in my territory. (laughs) From the director of Shine. This place is who I am. No, it's not. It's only one little part. Sometimes you have to let go. Look like you need a drink. I never drink at work. To find the one. You never drink at work. You never eat dessert. Kind of hoping you'll tell me you never go out with guys who sing opera. Worth holding on to. I never go out with guys who sing opera. But you never asked. I should go. You're leaning on my scarf. Oh, my God. <laughs> Academy Award winner, Catherine Zeta-Jones. So unpredictable. And Aaron Eckhart. Zoe, I am now going to kiss your aunt. This is so embarrassing. No reservations. No. So who's going to tell us? I think TJ and Grouse are going to tell us what scenes about this movie were particularly preserving. So the first one that I had pegged was when Kate returns to work. I guess we should say the premise of the film is that Her sister and niece are coming to visit her in New York, but they get into a car accident on the way. Her niece's father is out of the picture. He's never been in her life. And so Kate is the only family member that Zoe has. So Zoe goes to live with her. So she takes a little bit of time off of work to deal with this family situation. And in the meantime, the owner of the restaurant that she works at has brought in a new chef to cover her spot while she's away. And the chaos ensues. So when Kate returns to work and starts cooking with Nick... Nick is very outgoing and gregarious. He likes to listen to loud opera music while he's cooking and he's he's uh, engaging with the people in the kitchen. Kate returns to work. She comes in, immediately turns off the opera music in the kitchen. She says it's distracting to the staff. They're trying to figure out how to work together. And so Kate goes into her office. She uses a knife to slice the menu in half. She gives him the smaller portion of the menu and says, you take this half. This is so we stay out of each other's way. He starts to protest and she spins in the uh, swivel chair she's in, kind of holding the knife in a, in a threatening <laughs> way, and he he walks away. And then there's a montage of scenes of them cooking together and interacting together. He wants her to taste his sauce, so she tries it and she says, ah, that's all right, and she you know, walks away. Uh, he tries to get her to take a bite of something and she just ignores him and, and walks away. And then I don't think it's in the same sequence, but shortly after that, they have an interaction where... Obviously, he's getting the vibe that she doesn't want him to stay. And she tells him, this is my kitchen. I've worked really hard to get here, and I'm not going to let you take it away from me. So again, she's built this little kingdom. For her, the kingdom is her kitchen, as you mentioned earlier. I would add to that that her apartment, her life in general is her kingdom. Because one of the subplots in it is she's got a downstairs neighbor who's asking her out on a date. And then later comes out with her therapist. She's just not interested in having a relationship because, and this is where her mind goes to immediately, we're going to get serious and he's going to ask me to move in with him and I'm going to have to give up my apartment. Right. So a relationship is a threat to her living space and she has a pretty good apartment. She lives in Greenwich Village, seemingly walking distance from her restaurant. 
It's spacious. You know, she's got plenty of room for Zoe when she comes over. She's got a good kitchen. And finding a place to live is hard anywhere, much less in Manhattan. It's funny because there was kind of uh, what I thought of as location porn in both of these movies, right? I mean, that house, to your earlier point, TJ, in Father of the Bride was just a beautiful home that anybody would be. I think, happy to live in. And her apartment in this movie was, you know, fantastic. And even uh, the therapist's office was really, really nice. Uh, and by the way, I'll watch Bob Balaban in anything. I, I just love that guy whenever he's on screen who plays her therapist. Um, but I was looking at his office and I'm thinking, man, that's a guy who must be, pay, you know, charging a lot of money you know, as, as, as a therapist, because that was a really nice office with a beautiful view of, um, of New York. Uh, was there another scene, TJ, that you were going to mention? Yeah, well, I was going to say um, it's not necessarily one scene in particular, but sort of just the, the collection of the vignettes of her with her therapist that are sprinkled throughout the film. You already talked about her saying that she doesn't want to have a boyfriend because they move in together. She's going to have to give up her apartment. And she actually tells him that the last boyfriend she had, she broke up with because he had asked her to move in together after they had been together for two years already. Yes. And 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 what she said, too, at the end of that chain, right, he'll ask me to move in. I'll have to get rid of my place. We'll break up. And then where will I be? He asked her, I think it's in that scene where they're talking about her past relationship. He asked her, when was the last time you were in a serious relationship? And she says, that's kind of a personal question, isn't it? <laughs> Which, you know, you're, hey, dude, you're in therapy. You're supposed to answer personal questions. And then later uh, they're talking about, she's talking about how her mother was an excellent cook, and but she was the only one who appreciated it. And then he asked her, well, after your mother died, did your father not take over the cooking? And she says, he didn't take over much of anything. He, you know, we were lucky if he was even around for dinner. The therapist says, then who took over for the cooking if it wasn't him? And she says, can we not get into this right now? And I think the implicate, well, there's a couple of implications there. One, again, it's this, she's holding back. She, you know, she's in therapy and she doesn't want to talk about these personal issues. But also I thought that moment was interesting because it sort of implied she didn't want to talk about it because I think she was the one who took over. She took on that mother role when her mother passed away. Right. And so- she took on the role of the safety and the security and the comfort for her childhood home. And now she's protective of those things as an adult. Three things that I noticed that struck me as very preserving. One is just how good the food looks. You know, the scene when, because one of the plot points is that Zoe, who's traumatized, isn't eating. And she's got maybe the best chef, if not one of the best chefs in New York, making food for her personally, and she won't eat a single bite. And then Nick makes some spaghetti and kind of puts the bowl in her lap. Um, just breathe, just just look out for this for me. And I'll be right back. And then she starts eating it. And it's a simple bowl of spaghetti. It's not fancy at all. You know, he drizzles a few basil leaves on it. And it looks so delicious. It's really hard to watch that scene without wanting to eat spaghetti. And same with the various <laughs> staff meals. And I would say this is something in food movies in general. You know, whether that food movie is about preserving in general, but like it makes you want to to eat that food. And it's something my partner I mentioned is a preserver. Last night we were watching the movie nine to five and she immediately picked up and commented on the thinness of the coffee because a number of times the Lily Tomlin character is made to get coffee for her sexist boss. So she pours it out of the coffee maker into a mug. You see it very briefly and she immediately just clocked. Oh, that coffee looks terrible. It looks like <laughs> thin, you know, Sanka coffee. There's this sensitivity to stimuli of that kind that it's, it's visceral and that happens a lot in this movie there's a lot of food and it looks absolutely delicious so for me um kind of like tj said about father of the bride pretty much every frame of this movie reflects the preserving instinctual bias right certainly the focus on the food the focus on the nest both her place and the uh the kitchen as nest or even kingdom uh, to use TJ's uh, phrase. Also, the um, the risk aversion, risk management that went on. Um, I, I think that you're absolutely right, TJ. She was probably a, I'm sorry, a preserving one character. There was a lot of talk about perfection through this uh, movie right from the beginning. There was the, what I would call lack of intensity about the romantic relationship that um, I think was is reflective of the preserving 
domain. Uh, whenever I think about a relationship among preservers, I think of Edith and Archie Bunker, of just this comfortable, consistent, steady, dependable relationship, rather than, say, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie and Mr. and Mrs. Smith, right, who are trying to kill each other and then have sex. Um, so there, it's, there was nothing steamy at all about this relationship between two incredibly attractive people. Right, who are much more steamy in other roles. Or I, I can't speak with Aaron Eckhart. I haven't seen him in much, but certainly Catherine Zeta-Jones. So uh, just everything about this. The music was to tell you what to feel in this, right? Did not allow you to think for yourself or didn't want to make you have to think for yourself. So there was the sad, my sister died music, right? There was the the opera romantic music throughout. And, and then when they had the, they went from having the kitchen montage to the outside having fun montage, uh, which was accompanied by a Liz Fair song that was upbeat and poppy and happy again to 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 tell you what to think. So, again, not a movie that you had to think anything about. Now that said, I thought that it captured the demands of parenthood in a really interesting way because she became a de facto parent to this child, uh, who's you know, who's uh, her niece, whose mother had died, and had to figure out, okay, how do I make this work, right? How do we, how do I ensure the safety, the security, the stability of the life of this child when my life is so regimented, so fixed, so patterned? Uh, so I, I, if, if it was anything in the movie that I found to be thoughtful, in a way beyond, you know, kind of a formula. I think that's the part of it that I would lean to. So, but again, very preserving in my perspective. There's a couple of things that I've got. One was just how real all of the environments seem. This really does look like it was all location footage. I would be shocked yes. if it turns out that yes. that kitchen was on a soundstage. That looked like a real working kitchen. And there are heat vapors sometimes in between the camera and what you're seeing because it's a working grill. And there's breath vapor in the walk-in freezer scenes, of yes. which there's a few. Like that wasn't just something they lit to look cold. It really was cold. And same with when when uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones is walking Zoe to school, there's breath vapor as they're walking on the streets of New York because it's a real environment and you can feel it. That's not digitally added breath vapor. It's not, right. let's dress them in a scarf and a coat and a hat and pretend that it's cold when it's not. Same with the snow. There's a couple of scenes where there is snow packed on the ground or where it's snowing, it's not even referred to. It's just part of life, but it makes right. you feel like you're there. Uh, Kate's apartment looks lived in. Yes. Zoe's room eventually is filled with stuffed animals that look real and they look loved. There's a scene when Nick comes over and Zoe and Nick make pizza and God, does that pizza look good? And they take us through the process of what you do with the dough. But then they build this fort to give the dinner a safari theme. Yes. So there's lights and twinkly lights and there's candles and there's safari, you know, African animals that are part of it and there's decorations. So all of this is, is very, very real. And yet again, my preserving partner, when we watch movies together, is quick to notice these, especially in old movies, 40s movies, 50s movies, to notice the furniture to notice the decor, to notice the way a glass of water looks. All of these preserving details really pop for her in any movie we watch. With this one, it definitely popped for me of like, this is all believable. It's visceral, very easy to get into, to understand that environment, to feel like you're there. I'll also uh, make one other uh, observation with the Catherine Zeta-Jones character. Uh, again, Catherine Zeta-Jones is a, is a beautiful, beautiful woman. And they downplayed her attractiveness in a way that was very real and very consistent with what I see in preservers, particularly preserving women who are very attractive. There's this consciousness, yes, I'm attractive and I can doll it up when I need to, but I really just want to put my hair up under my hat, put on some sweats and be comfortable and not be noticed. Right. And so I, I appreciated the truthfulness of that in this movie, right? Of, yeah, that's what a beautiful preserving woman looks like when she goes out, right? Um, so I, I, th I thought this movie was very, very genuine and very real in those ways. One more thing I'd add is when customers 
want the food the way they want it. So there's a scene early in the movie where a guy wants to send back the foie gras that his wife has ordered. And there's a scene later in the movie when the guy keeps repeatedly sending back his steak for not being rare enough. That's something that I think is much more likely to be seen from preservers than others is I want it the way I want it and nothing else will do. And there's a great scene in When Harry Met Sally where it's early in the movie and Sally's ordering something at a diner. Harry just says, I'll have the number three. And Sally says, I want this, but if only if you have this, and if you don't have this, then I want that. And if you don't have that, then don't have it at all. And it's like, it's longer than I just summarized it right now. It's yes. very, very long as he's staring at her like she's an alien. And she says, what? I just want it the way I want it. To a preserver, that seems like a normal way to order food. That's how my wife orders every meal we get. And mine too. Although I will say that ending scene when the guy sends the steak back twice and she brings out the raw steak on the fork and slams it down on the table. That's one of my all-time favorite scenes, I think, <laughs> if for no other reason than it's like an outlet. Like, metaphorically, I want to do that every day with so many people in my life. And it's like, yeah, she did it! <laughs> Takes off the apron and storms out. I can see TJ doing that. The other thing that speaks to the preserving oneness of the character is whenever somebody wanted to meet her to congratulate her on how great the meal was and give her compliments, she was very indifferent to it. It's almost as like, well, of course it's perfect. That's how it's supposed to be. But the moment somebody criticized something, forget about it. She was shooting out of the kitchen like a rocket. So, um, Again, excellent, excellent choices for depicting the preserving domain. If you want to understand what the preserving instinctual biases is all about, watch these movies, take notes. It really is captured there. There is focus on tradition. There is focus on family. There's focus on safety, consistency, security. There's focused on tradition. There's focused on protecting the nest from interlopers and invaders. Um, and there's this, again, this um, fundamental decency. I think in all of these characters that we saw, they're just likable, decent people, right? which is often what we see with preservers. So really good choices that way. I will say that if I never see either of these movies again, uh, I'll be okay with that, right? Uh, you know, they weren't... Uh, my favorites. But uh, like I said, I did find Father of the Bride charming upon uh, watching it again. And I do think Martin Short was great. I I think that uh, his character of Frank, I don't know that it would bear repeated watching, but uh, you know, watching it once or twice, I thought it was pretty funny. You never make me watch Grease or Purple Rain again, and I'll never make you watch these movies again, and we'll call it even. There you go. There you go. And I will say that both of those movies, TJ, were TJ Dahl's choices, so, you know, for mm. what it's worth. Mario so, is yet to exact his uh, price. Uh, <laughs> that's right. That's Maybe right. The Godfather uh, Part 3. <laughs> oh, God. I quit. No, 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 no. I wouldn't, I wouldn't put us through that. But we will be talking next time about Enneagram Type 8. So um, I think that's where we're going to start with our type journey. One more thing is I wanted to list a few other movies that oh, yes, really good. highlight preserving domain. So we talked about food movies. Here's just a few others. Eat, Drink, Man, Woman. That's a Taiwanese movie. It was remade in the United States as Tortilla Soup. Amazing food. Just you drooling as you're watching it. Chef with John Favreau. Uh, like Water for Chocolate, a Mexican film. It's excellent. Uh, the Scent of Green Papayas. The TV series Bear just had its first season yes. this last year. So Very that's good. you're going into the quality of the food as well as like the running of a business. How do you get your supplies? How do you pay the bills? How do you keep the doors open? Baking shows in general, competition, cooking shows, and baking shows are very highlighting of preserving, and preservers quite often like them. To build on something else we were talking about, movies with vivid environments. So Wes Anderson movies in general, where you really feel the space that the movie takes place in, especially if the movie mostly takes place in one environment. So the house in the Royal Tenenbaums, or the hotel in the Grand Budapest Hotel, the boat in the Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, Stanley Kubrick movies as well, uh, The Hotel and The Shining, the various spaceships in 2001 A Space Odyssey, as well as the African Savannah, uh, the boot camp in Full Metal Jacket. Steven Spielberg has a fair bit of preserving in him too. E.T., the house in E.T., which was modeled on Spielberg's own home. He said that, you know, that closet that was kind of the link between Elliot's room and his sister's room, that was his actual closet. That was his bedroom. And again, it feels lived in. It's messy. It's loved. Uh, home renovation reality shows in general. Shows about flipping a house or rebuilding. 
And then one of the shadows of the um, the preserving domain, hoarders. The a &E series hoarders is about what happens when a certain element of preserving goes out of control. An element of preserving we have not talked about in this episode, but I see a lot of preserving in, is movies where physical survival is at stake, where it's not about my reputation. It's not about, will I be able to be the greatest rock star in Minneapolis? It's about something is trying to take my life. So Jaws, Predator, Prey, Alien, uh, The Revenant, Beast. So, you know, the, the Edge. So it might be nature. I've crash landed a plane in the frozen north and there's a bear trying to eat me or there's an alien or a shark trying to eat me. It could be from inside your own body, something like Wit, which is about, you know, the main character is diagnosed with very aggressive cancer in the opening moment or regarding Henry, where somebody is shot and paralyzed and has to relearn to walk. 2001 A Space Odyssey, there's a lot of attention to what do they eat on these spaceships? How do they survive? Cryogenic sleep, how do they breathe? How do you survive when the computer running the ship wants to kill you? Uh, Quest for Fire is a movie that takes place in prehistory. You know, So what happens when this primitive tribe's fire goes out? How do we get more fire? Uh, a movie that's nominated for documentaries now, EO, which is about a donkey. And how does this donkey survive? You know, what are the dangers that can happen to it as a domesticated animal? The bear, not the one about the restaurant, but the 1988 movie about an actual bear. How does that survive? We already talked about comfy heroes. So Bilbo Baggins, Stranger Than Fiction. And as we already talked about Hallmark movies, yeah. movies about tradition, about the things we know and love. I'll add a few to that. Most Christmas movies fall into the same sort of category, right, of uh, preserving, or at least our relationship to them is very preserving. Um, um, a Wonderful Life, for example, very much a preserving movie, and our relationship to it is preserving. It's dependable. We watch it each year over and over again, A Christmas Story, etc. I think Banshees of Ines Sharon would qualify as a preserving movie, all about a place. Um, uh, the Martian is a great example of a preserving movie, Castaway, right? Movies where somebody has to, you know, survive, fend for their life. Alive, about the plane crash of the uh, rugby team in the Andes. And Big Night, one of my favorites, uh, about the Italian restaurant with uh, Tony Shalhoub and... Uh, Stanley Tucci. St Stanley Tucci, thank you very much. Um, very good preserving movie. So good stuff. Um, guys, thanks again, as always. An illuminating and interesting conversation, and we'll see you all next time. Thanks for listening to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. Be sure to join us for the next exciting episode. In the meantime, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe, and join us on social media. 